0: All right, so you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to finish the chapter this week. All right, so Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Last week we had, what we talked about was one of the, the biggest, most important interactions that Jesus has had with his disciples up to this point. He kind of called them to give an account of who he is. Who do you believe that I am? What do you understand about my purpose here? And Peter absolutely aced The test, right? Peter steps forward, speaking for the group, and says, You are Christ. You are the one who we've been looking for. You are the answer to all of the problems in the world. You are the hope that we have been waiting on. You are the one who is coming back, who's going to make everything right and fix our relationship, our broken relationship with God. Confidently, he stepped forward and said this. And and Jesus responded confidently to him and said, That is such a good answer. You know what? God's going to do big things with you, Peter. You're going to play a really important role as God builds up his church. You're going to be an important person. This profession of faith that you have in me is correct. And that profession of faith is going to carry forward throughout the church with people professing that I am the only means of salvation. Right? That's what we just sang about. Jesus paid it all. He took care of everything. But the point in that text, and Jesus paid it all as we're singing it, that we know as we look back is we're singing about Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for us. This being here to die so that he could take our place in God's wrath and that he could could take all of that, that judgment that we deserve on himself. That's what we're singing about. When he paid it all, he paid it all by sacrificing everything for us because he loves us and he wanted us to be with him. That's the piece of the whole thing that the disciples still didn't get. And what we're going to get into today is Jesus' immediate follow-up to them saying, You are Christ. You're the one we've been looking for. He's going to say, and here's the whole purpose of what the Messiah was going to do when he got here. He's going to, for the first time of four times the rest of the book, he's going to start teaching them about his purpose of sacrificing himself as a means of reconciling all of us to God. So if you're in Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to give you just kind of the first part of this interaction. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21, and I'm going to read through verse 23. Uh, from, this, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter, still the spokesman for the group, still the one who's going to confidently step forward, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Stop right there couple of things, and I've already kind of implied this, but it starts with from that time on. So we've been saying this whole chapter kind of acts as a shift in focus. It goes from Jesus' big outward ministry, focusing on the crowds, focusing on big powerful miracles and lots of people coming to him to see those things taking effect, to now focusing more of his attention on his disciples. And we've had another uh, time earlier in the book where it says, from that time on, and that was describing as Jesus kind of opened his public ministry period of his life. Uh, so now we kind of see the close of that. It says, from that time on. So, so that part is done. We've, we've turned the page. We're in the last chapter now where Jesus is going to start his walk toward Jerusalem, and he's going to start that walk with this explanation to his disciples. You know that I'm the, You know that I am the Messiah, Here's the whole purpose of the Messiah. From that time on, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And I think that that is an important word for us to focus on because it really implies that this is the only way that there was going to be reconciliation for us. This is the only way that there was going to be salvation for us who have been separated from God. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer these things. He must be killed. And oh, by the way, he must be raised from the dead. The the disciples seem to continually forget this part. And in these interactions, when Jesus is teaching them about this, they often forget that he's going to come back, that he's predicting, not only am I going to be killed, I'm going to be raised again. Which which is really fascinating because by the end of the book, once he has suffered and once he has died, they go in hiding. They go hide in a room and they're like, I don't know what's going to happen. We're probably all going to be killed next. And they forget this important part of the teaching. But every time that Jesus is going to teach them of his death, he's going to be reminding them that that's not the end, that he is going to be raised back. He must go to Jerusalem to die, but there is more to it than just his death. The work is completed when he defeats death, when he defeats the power of sin that so corrupts us and kills us. So the idea from that time on, is, 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 I want you to get this in your mind, is that the rest of his earthly ministry is him pouring this kind of teaching into his people. Like, I know this is a hard thing for you to understand. I know you're not going to like to hear this. Obviously, we kind of see that from Peter's response to him. But he so wants to constantly be pouring this truth into them. It's not like he explained it once and then he moved on, never to be mentioned again. It was constantly, he was going to continue to be in their life for as long as he could, teaching them as much truth as he could. And so what he's really explaining to them is last week he confirmed his true identity. And this week he's confirming his true purpose, his true mission as the Messiah to his disciples. And so what we have to understand is that the ultimate purpose of Jesus' being here was that he would suffer and that he would be killed. And sometimes we think of, you know, God's intent for something obviously means it's a good thing, meaning that, that it's a good thing that he's here to suffer and he's here to be killed. Especially good for us, because that's the means by which God is bringing about salvation for us. But, but we often think of God's purposes, you know, the things that God wants are going to be good things, and they're going to be good for me things, and that's true, but we don't often think of good for us things as pain and suffering and death, right? We don't often lock in on, what, what, what good thing's going to happen to me today? Well, it might be that I'm suffering. It might be that I lose my job. It might be that I lose this relationship with this friend for the sake of Jesus, But even in his example, in his life, his good purpose, the thing that he was here for involved suffering and pain and death. You know, we often think of martyrdom as like a consequence for our belief, but, but, but to think of it as a purpose, right? It's not like, it's not like he's going to be killed as a result of what he is, he's going to be killed because that's why he was here. And I don't know that, I mean, I don't know that we, we connect those. I know I don't connect those enough. Just that idea that, that he was here to be killed. Like, his whole purpose. God, walking on earth, coming down from heaven, leaving everything... To be killed. His whole purpose for life was to suffer and die. Oh, and by the way, to be raised from the dead. We cannot forget that part. Because, that is, because that's part of his purpose as well. It's not a completed work until he overcomes death. Until he is raised from the dead. And look, that, that word is written in a passive way. It doesn't, it doesn't say until he raises himself. It says to be raised, Right? He's already attributed a lot of work of his ministry to the father. Last week he said to Peter, you know, you understand this because my father granted this understanding to you. And this week he's kind of implying again, yes, I'm going to be killed at the hands of all of the religious people in Jerusalem. But my father who is looking out for me is going to raise me from the dead. This is still a a kind of cooperative work within the trinity even though we even though we worship one god they all kind of work simultaneously together in unique ways part of this is jesus's work of dying and god's work god the father's work of raising him from the dead because he's not going to leave his son in this state and i think that's really cool to understand so let's look at peter again i said last week that i really associate myself a lot with peter because Peter talks a lot. Peter steps to the front a lot. Peter puts his foot in his mouth a lot. And this is one of those great examples where Peter, thinking that he's he's going to He's gonna help Jesus. He's gonna kind of enlighten Jesus. This doesn't need to happen. You're you're Jesus. We're gonna we'll make sure that this doesn't happen, right? I'm gonna protect you from this thing so that you don't put yourself in a position where something bad's gonna happen. Because we know that nobody wants that to happen, especially among us, especially me. Because you know I'm kind of in charge here among these guys. I step forward a lot. We don't want anything to happen to you. We don't want this whole thing to fall apart. And so we think of it kind of as a chummy sort of, I'm just going to pull him over to the side and say, don't worry about that. We'll take care of it. Which I say sometimes, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Don't freak out. It's not a thing. But but it's more than that. Just just the fact that um, Peter is speaking out against something that his master has been explaining to him flies in the face of all of Jewish culture. A master-disciple relationship, you don't Tend to speak back to your master, let alone go so far as to rebuke your master. So it's not just that he's saying, you're, you're, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like that teaching or I'm not sure that that's exact. He's saying, you are wrong for explaining that to us. Like, this is more of an antagonistic response that he's having, which is completely unheard of in Jewish culture. There is no reason that an apprentice would kind of rise up against his master in this way. So just the fact that Peter is responding in this way, even though he misunderstands the purpose of Jesus' death, even the way he's interacting with him is in a sense sinful because he's forgetting his position under Jesus. He's forgetting that he is still a learner. He's forgetting that he is a disciple. And it's not that he's asking clarifying questions to follow up. It's not that he's saying, I don't understand why this is. Can you help me with it? He's saying, no, this is not going to happen. We'll make sure to protect you don't think that this is going to happen even for a second. You're wrong for explaining it. That's, the kind, of the, that's kind of the mentality that, that Peter is approaching this with. Uh, obviously, I don't, I'm not trying to say that, like, the authority, over whatever authority you have over you, whether it be a boss or some government official or even an elder or even a community group leader or in some cases a husband, I'm not saying that those people are... Jesus. But one thing that we do kind of get to see here is the the authority kind of relationship that Jesus has with his people. We kind of see the overstepping of trying to say, no, I'm going to take back authority here. I'm going to say that you're not in charge, even though Jesus is obviously the one who they should be following, not the one who they should be leading. And I want us to kind of see the absurdity of, G- of Peter to kind of overstep and say, I'm going to take control here. Because right, isn't that what we tend to do when we're sinning? We're saying, no, I think I know better what's good for me than what God would have for me. So I'm going to say, I'm going to take back control here. I'm going to kind of lead for a, for a time. And sometimes we do that with, our, with, with anybody that's in authority over us. If, if your boss asks you to do something and you say, no, I have a better way, I'm just going to do it this way, you're disobeying this direct, you know, instruction that your boss has been giving you. You're basically saying, I'm going to be in charge now. And that, that makes zero sense. That makes, that, that, that seems absurd. And I want us to understand, that's what Peter's doing. He's saying, I think it would be better if I was in charge when it comes to who's going to die and who's going to live and who's going to suffer. Peter's basically taking control for himself, which, which we so love to do, right? We feel so much safer when we're in control when we're the ones making the calls, when we don't have to, to worry about the consequences because we're like, we got it, we're in charge. Uh, so, so Peter loses sight of the fact that Jesus is God, that Jesus is in authority, and Peter begins to you know, treat him like a human again, and now he's treating him like a human with no sense. Like he's saying, I think I've got this better than you, I'm going to take care of it. Um, so he's not even thinking of him... Just as he did, you know, a few minutes ago when he's saying, you know what, you're Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the hope. He's, he's in a sense kind of backtracking from that and just treating him like another guy yet again. And so Jesus recognizes this response in Peter. Uh, and, and this is, and I kind of prayed about this earlier, that we would have a bigger picture mindset when we see these kinds of things. That we wouldn't just think of it as Peter's mistaken in the purpose of the Messiah and Jesus ought to just correct him and then move on. But, but Jesus' response is very strong, right? He just said, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. Like, you're going to play a foundational role in the development of the church. And the next thing he says to him is, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me right? Because Jesus recognizes that it's not just that Peter doesn't understand. It's that, it's that Satan is using Peter as a temptation to keep Jesus from accomplishing his divine purpose, his real mission, his purpose for being here on earth. This is not at all different from the, intera- the last interaction that we saw Jesus have with Satan when he had been out in the desert, being tempted, being starved? And, and one of the things that Satan tempts Jesus with is, I can give you a workaround from this, sur- from this suffering thing. I can just give you all of this. You don't have to go fight for it. You don't have to suffer and die. All you have to do is worship me. You worship me. I'll make sure you don't have to go through all that pain and suffering and torment and death. And, and, and in a sense, Satan had that authority to offer that to Jesus. And and Jesus, again, is recognizing this is that exact same temptation. By Peter saying, I can fight for you. I can keep you from suffering. We can keep you from dying. We'll go hide you somewhere where this isn't going to happen. Jesus recognizes this isn't just a misunderstanding. This is a temptation to keep me from accomplishing the whole reason that I am on earth. The whole reason that I came here. There's no other way around my suffering and dying, and, I can, and that would still bring salvation, right? Because we said, he must go to Jerusalem. It must happen. This is the only way. And Jesus understands that, and he immediately responds strongly to Peter, just like he did to Satan when he was being tempted, right? He says to Peter, get behind me. We're done. We're not having this conversation anymore. He says, you've lost sight of, of who it is that you're talking to. You're talking to me like a man. I'm thinking in big picture. These are the things of God. This is what God is working to accomplish, not the small little things that you're thinking of just as a little human being. I also want to point out that that Peter's, Peter's response to Jesus here is after he's been given understanding of who Jesus is by God, right? So sometimes we would say, oh, he doesn't get it. Maybe it's that he hasn't We would say this of somebody else. They don't get it yet. Maybe it's because they're not saved. They're teaching this thing wrong. Maybe it's because they're not saved. This is after God has already inspired Peter's understanding of who he is, and yet he's still giving this response. So so here's the thing I want to caution us with. We can still be used by Satan post-salvation to tempt others to sin. That's what we're seeing happen here. Perhaps he's using it in a way because because Peter's become, you know, a bit puffed up. You know, he just got told, hey, you're an important guy moving forward here. You're understanding these things. And maybe Peter's a little bit overconfident. He's like, oh, Jesus just told me I'm going to be a really important player moving forward here. I feel that I can go ahead and step forward and say, we're going to make sure this suffering thing doesn't happen, right? You just get a little, he got a little overconfident. He started thinking a little too highly of himself. I don't know what it is, but whatever it was, he fell back into sin. He fell back into thinking of Jesus not as the perfect son of God here to save us. Here to be the perfect sacrifice that that could reconcile us to God. And he already knows this, but yet he's able to to be used in a way that could try to distract Jesus. That could try to pull him away from his mission. And in a sense, he's doing it by just the way he's giving Jesus advice. Maybe maybe you shouldn't think of it that way, Jesus. Maybe we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it, right? So we have interactions with with people all the time. We have interactions with each other, community groups, whatever. And, and, And I don't want us to think that we are beyond giving bad advice, right? We're beyond giving bad counsel, We're beyond giving somebody some sort of counsel that would actually pull them further away from the will of God. Because obviously, Peter was tempted to do that and did here. He's giving Jesus awful advice. Jesus, I would rather that you not die as a means of bringing me into a closer relationship with God. That's the advice that Peter's giving him. He doesn't realize that's the advice that he's giving him. But that's the advice that Peter is communicating and, and I want us to understand that sometimes the things we say to one another when we're trying to help one another or make somebody maybe not freak out about something or not worry about something, it we can say things that actually detract people from the will of God, which is why it's so much more important for us when we're when we're counseling people, or when we're encouraging one another, to really make sure that the things that we're saying are rooted in scripture and, and seem to be reflected in this is what God's will is. Like that's why we gotta be so careful about the things that we're we're explaining to each other and we're saying, well, I think you should do this or I think you should do that. Make sure the advice that we give, and this is, this is good for me as well as you because we give advice, we, we talk to people, we counsel people, is make sure that you are constantly pointing each other back toward God and back toward the will of God, especially as it's revealed in Scripture. Because, because if the disciples understood what the whole Old Testament had been saying, and they'd understood why the sacrificial system had been given, and they understood all of these things that Jesus has been teaching them this whole time that he's been on earth, they would understand, oh, suffering, dying, that makes perfect sense. He's going to be the sacrifice that's going to fix everything. But because they they weren't fully understanding, they weren't completely rooted in Scripture the way they probably ought to have been, Here's Peter telling Jesus, let's not do it that way. Let's do it in a way that I think would work out better for me in the here and now. Let's go ahead and keep reading. We'll pick up in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus goes on to add that not only must he kind of begin this march toward his own death as they start walking back toward Jerusalem, but he explains that all of the Christian life is essentially taking up one's cross and following him. It's not just that he's walking toward his death, but but as we follow him, we are essentially doing the exact same thing. Every step that Jesus takes, the rest of this this book is going to be him walking toward the cross until he ultimately overcomes death. What he's explaining to his disciples is, not only must I die, but in following me, you're saying that you're right there with me. And when we say, pick up your cross and follow me, we don't, we don't, we, you've, you've probably heard it explained sometime by someone, the whole, the whole mechanics of what crucifixion is and how miserable and awful it was. Like it was viewed as the most torturous, the most demeaning way to kill someone at this point. There is no worse death that could be had. And I would imagine there are probably very few deaths now that I could think of that would be worse. It was, it was horribly embarrassing, it was painful, it was slow, and, and, and it was terrifying to people who understood what crucifixion was. We, we can't fully wrap our brains around it, I don't think. So when you hear Jesus saying, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his own cross and come after me, that's a scary thought to somebody who really understands the consequences of being crucified, the actual implications of what he is saying there. And now he's comparing crucifixion to discipleship. To follow Jesus is to walk toward your own death. Now, perhaps that's not going to mean a physical death for you as a result of your following him, because not everyone who, die, who, who is saved is going to be killed as a result of their following him but it does mean that we die to ourselves in a lot of ways. We essentially die to follow Jesus. We lose our desires. We lose our plans and follow him no matter what it may be. You may think, we may think, I may think, I know exactly what Jesus wants. I may think I know this is is what I think Jesus put in my heart. I'm going to do this with my life. I know exactly what I wanted to do. You know what I wanted to do when I was first going to college? I thought I was going to make video games. Because I went, to a job fa- I went to a college fair, and, and my mom took me up to the digital media table, and she said, recruit my son. And he said, what video games do you like to play? And I gave him a list. He said, those are good games. You want to make the next one? I said, sure, sign me up. And that was it. I'm going to go make video games. That's what, that's what I want to do with my life, right? And then what do I do? I don't make video games. I took, I took one 3D class. I lasted literally one week. And I said, no, I'm done. I cannot do this. Let's try something else. What we think are our desires are not necessarily the same desires that Jesus has for us. A lot of them, and a lot of this is not just focused on what, what job am I supposed to have when I grow up and become a big boy, right? Like a lot of us have those kinds of ideas and then God will change those. But, but more than that, maybe it's that you have this idea of I want to have this kind of life where I have this kind of house with these kind of people that live with me in this house, in this kind of a location. And I have these kinds of little people that go to this kind of school. And I have this whole thing planned out. They're going to be named this, 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 and this. These two are going to be named after this family member and this family you know, Some of us go way overboard with how we've planned out our lives. And sometimes Jesus says, all of those things are not going to happen. I have a completely different plan. Actually, I don't want you to work a real job. I want you to actually just get rid of all of your things and I want you to go live here. And I'm going to get, do something with you here. That's dying. That's that's losing that identity that you so thought you were supposed to have, that you wanted. that, That person that you envisioned yourself becoming is dead. And you are a completely different person as you follow after Jesus. That's what he's talking about as well. Sure, it may mean that, and for all of these disciples to continue to follow him ultimately led to their death. If you've been here on Sunday nights, as we've been reading through Acts, we just read about some of them, some of the disciples just last week, who had said, oh, and by the way, this guy got killed and this guy got killed. And we're going to continue to see this guy's going to die this way, this guy's going to die this way. I mean, Peter, you know, we don't have it in the Bible, but tradition says that Peter's also going to get crucified just like Jesus. Sort of just like Jesus. He didn't want to die just like Jesus, so they hung him upside down. But he's like... Like, as literally as, as this verse can be taken, Peter is going to follow it. If you follow me, you're picking up a cross, and we're going. This is going to happen. To follow Jesus is to lose ourselves, to die to ourselves, to not be in control of who we want ourselves to be, but to trust that, that Jesus is going to do something with us, and it might be something completely different than we ever expected. True disciples discover the ultimate value of the gospel and sacrifice everything they have for it. Paul said it really well. I'm going to read Philippians chapter 3. I didn't, I I got really, it got really crazy here right before we started church and I didn't get all the verses in here, so I'm sorry about that. I'm going to read you this. You can write this down. You can can try to turn there if you want to. It's Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 7 through 9. If not, just write it down and go back and read it again later. It says, but whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul is saying is I understood everything. I studied the Bible, I knew how to live my life. I I had gotten to the point where I could do whatever I wanted to with my life. I could be an important person in the government. I could have all this stuff and anything that I've ever gained, any knowledge, any stuff, any things are not worth it. I found something so much better than those things. And I am ready to get rid of them for the sake of Jesus because I love him and I want him so much more than any of those things. Is that you? Is that us? Do we, I mean, we're like, yeah, that, I'm sure you can nod your head and say, yeah, that sounds really good. That's, that's how I think I can be. But does it, is it true? Like, Like, if you really did get asked by God to sell everything you have and move somewhere else where nobody you know lives, and you've got to just kind of start over and be that person there, is that you? Would you actually do that? I mean, I know for me, that would be a really, really hard ask. There are lots of things about this place, this church that I really like. Maybe God says, you've got this great church, but I have another church that needs somebody like you to go to. Right? We kind of felt that. We had people that, that were med students that were here right as we started, and they were like, they all were graduating from med school. It's like, now it's time for you guys to go be at churches somewhere else in other cities while you go start your residency. And it's like, we really like this church. But God's like, no, you need to let go of this church. You need to go take what, what you've gotten from this church and go influence some other church. You need to go be an, 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 an excited member in another place. I'm going to use you there now. It could be, it could be anything. It could be, your, it could be this church. It could be your job. It could be, it could be your friends. It could be, I don't know. I mean, I think about, like, like, the Gibsons who Daniel helped plant here, and now they're getting ready to go move to Japan to minister there. Like, like it's, it's one thing to, say, move to the next city, and you don't see people as much, but, but Japan's a hard commute, right? And so they've been taught that, like, it's not just a sacrifice for them, it's a sacrifice for their families, their, their children's grandparents, You know, it's a a big deal to say, I'm going to give up everything that I have, the whole identity that I've built for myself here, and I'm going to pursue Jesus somewhere else. And it might be that he actually is calling you to do something like that. But are you able to look at all the things in your life and see them as rubbish? See them as something that is of absolutely no value compared to Jesus? Are you actually able to get there? Because if you're not... If there's something you're like, I don't think I could let go of that. Then we're not quite there yet. He says, I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. All of it. Everything. Just give me Jesus. That's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is dying to ourselves so that we can follow after him. Let's go ahead and finish the chapter. Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in, glory, in the glory of his Father, and then he will pay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so he completes this promise by saying, after I, after I march to my death, after I die, after I'm raised, after I'm gone, I'm going to come back. And when I come back, that's going to be it, right? I'm going to come back. That's going to be it. We're, de- we're going to call to account everybody who, who is in Christ, who's not in Christ. That's, that's the end. There, is no, there are no more chances. There's no, let's try this again. I'm coming back, and that's going to be the moment. where We all have to give an account. Much like, similar to the moment that the disciples had experienced last week when he said, who do you say I am? It's almost like this is kind of the pre-test. Like, this is what it's going to be like. Who do they say I am? They don't know who you are. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ. Right. When I come back, that's going to be the conversation that we're going to have. But there's not going to be do-overs. There's not going to be try-again moments. So why does he say to some of them, there are some of you here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. But all of these guys have died. What is he talking about? Uh... And I kind of think this kind of points to a lot of the way that I've learned to read a lot of prophecy, and that is that with most any prophecy that you read in the Old Testament, uh, there seems to be kind of a double fulfillment. There's like the prophet makes the prophecy for something that's going to happen really quickly, but there's also like kind of a long-term thing that God is doing with that prophecy, some longer term. I mean, even if you just look at the way the law has worked, like here's the law, here's the way that I want you to live your lives, but all of that is pointing toward Jesus in the future. Um Spoiler alert, next week, Caleb's going to talk about Jesus kind of revealing himself to be very godlike in a really, really flashy sort of way. Uh, and I kind of think that some of this is him talking to these guys. Hey, next week, I'm going to be uh, really shiny, and you're going to see me for who I really am. Sorry, I, every time I say really shiny, I think of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from VeggieTales. One of them's really shiny. Right? No? Okay, good. Sorry. But I think he's kind of pointing toward some of you are going to see this happen. He's saying, all of you are going to see me raised from the dead, right? You're going to see me lifted up into heaven right before your eyes. And I think he's kind of setting up stages for this. But he's also saying, at the very end, and this may be not being for them in this sense, I'm going to come back. And I think he's trying to fill them and us with a sense of urgency, right? That that we need to get this now because Jesus could come back and that's it. He could come back and say, who do you say that I am? And if we get the answer wrong, that's it. If we don't understand who he is, that's the end. And I want us to feel this same sense of urgency when we're examining our own hearts. Do I understand Jesus for who he really is? Am I really ready to set this stuff, all of it aside, to chase after him? And I want that to affect the way that we take the gospel with us when we're, when we're interacting with people, when we're talking to people, when we're having lunch together, when we're having lunch with people from work, when we're, when we're talking to people you know, on a break or whatever it may be, when we're in between classes, whatever, whatever situation you may be in in your life, I want us to feel the sense of urgency that I think Jesus is trying to fill his disciples with here when he's saying, I'm going to go, but at some point I'm coming back. And when I come back, that's it. So, so let's get to work. Let's get this stuff explained to people. Let's, let's, let's show people who Jesus is. And I think that's part of the call that we should have as the church is that, man, this is real. The consequences are real. What is at stake is very high. Why am I so locked in on, man, I got to make sure I have all 382 channels or whatever it may be. I don't know what your thing is that you like to hold on to, but I would imagine that every single one of us in here have a thing that we want to hold on to, something that we don't want to let go of, something that we want to be in charge of, kind of like Peter earlier, like something that we want to be in control of. Like, Jesus, you can have everything, but I just I kind of want to be in control of this thing. I don't know what your thing is. But whatever it is that you need to let go of and let him be in charge of and trust that even if he takes it away, it's okay because it doesn't matter because he's Jesus and he's better than that. It's more important that we understand these things now because because we don't know know when that moment's going to come that we have to give that account and that there are no more do-overs. So I want you to get this now. I want me, I want to understand this now. Because there's a lot at stake. There's a lot to lose here. And I think it's way better that we go ahead and lose the things that don't matter and chase after Jesus, even if that means we're walking toward our own death. Because that's what he's already done for us, and we're just in it with him. Let's pray. God, make this real to us. Make us understand the gravity of what it is that we're talking about. God, reveal to us the things that are in our hearts that we don't want to let go of, the things that are in our lives that that we really, really love and we would really, really hate to lose or the things that we just want to be in charge of. God, what are the things the places that we like to be in control. Show those things to us so that we can know, oh man, I'm holding on to this harder than I'm holding on to Jesus. And God, I just pray that you would make Jesus seem so much more valuable to us that it's not, a, it's not a hard thing. It's not even a big deal for us to say, I don't need that. I've got Jesus. I don't, I don't have to be in charge of this. I've got Jesus. I don't need that control. I've just kind of let go and surrendered it all to him. He's got it. And God, even even though we may be being called to something hard, something potentially painful, something that might even even cost us our life, God, I pray that we would be so excited that we get to to follow you toward that because in the end we get you. God, I pray that you get a hold of our hearts. Maybe where some of us don't even understand, maybe where some of us don't even have a heart, to desire this, that you would give us that heart, you would give us those desires. God, we know that, that, that the final part of that promise that he made, that he was going to die, was that you were going to raise him to life. He was going to overcome death. He was going to defeat the one thing that sin guaranteed, that because we sin, we're going to die. But even he beat that when he beat sin. And God, I just pray that you would make that truth, that you have overcome sin, you have overcome death. You would make that truth alive in us, in all of us, even in those of us who came in this morning and they don't even really get it. They don't even really like it. They don't even really believe it. Or maybe they think they're somewhere in the middle. You're on the fence. You're undecided. You're 50-50, whatever it is. God, I just pray that you would get after our hearts this morning, that you would overcome the death that's in all of our hearts. Give us life. Fill us with that sense that you are worth everything and that you would take everything that's in our lives that we think we love and make it mean nothing to us. Make much of yourself this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.